Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is May the 30th, a Tuesday, 2023. Uh, the headlines today are depressingly familiar. The war in Ukraine continues. The Washington Post today leads with a drone attack, uh, a Ukrainian drone attack that shocked, apparently, Moscow after their, the Russian new missile strike on Kiev. Um, the New York Times also features this drone attack, as well as the Wall Street Journal. And the Wall Street Journal also focuses on uh, a Ukrainian and so-called allied plan for a peace summit without Russia. I'm not sure what kind of summit that would be if uh, one of the parties in the war isn't there. One man uh, on the Wall Street Journal who is all too familiar with this war is my guest today, Brett Forrest. He's a reporter for the Wall Street Journal, and he was the first um, uh, the first reporter in the Kiev suburb of Bucha after Russia's military withdrawal, where he broke news of um, alleged atrocities. And Brett has a new book out. It's called Lost Son, an American family trapped inside the FBI's secret war. It's an interesting book because uh, rather than looking for good and evil, it f seems to find, at least in my mind, a kind of horrible muddle. It could have almost been written by Graham Greene or John le Carre on the incompetence of the American FBI. Um, Brett is joining us from Washington, D.C., uh, where the Wall Street Journal has an office. Uh, Brett, is that a fair analysis, this new book, uh, a, a, a very sad book about uh, a young American called Billy Riley, who seemed to have been sucked into all sorts of uh, intelligence shenanigans. Is it in some ways, um, it's obviously a tragedy, particularly for the family, but is it also a farce? Andrew, nice to be with you today. Uh, very good question. Good, good question to begin with. Uh, you know, I'll answer it this way. The FBI is a vast organization with tens of thousands of employees. Many of them are dedicated people. Uh, intelligent and uh, professional, but uh, but it's so big that uh, there are bound to be folks who who don't quite meet the mark, and um, and especially after 9/11, because th this book does go back all that way. Um, as we all remember those times, uh, there was such uh, an imperative for intelligence and information globally to to prevent. Uh, a repeat of 9-11, of that there were a lot of mistakes made by the FBI and, and other uh, law enforcement and intelligence agencies in the U.S. And, and one of the mistakes they made, I believe, is uh, they scooped up a lot of people like Billy Riley and um, as what is called a confidential human source. Um, and they, they employed these people to do a host of different duties and activities, many of which uh, FBI employees didn't have the skills or, or knowledge for. And um, and along the way, they they happen to discard, use and discard such people. And I think that this book uh, really uh, it, it turns the light on something that really does demand further scrutiny. Yeah. Reading the book and reading the pieces you wrote for the journal about uh, Billy Riley, he, he strikes me as 
someone quintessentially um, all-American, uh, for better or worse, just a, a really ordinary boy who got sucked into this kind of clueless, uh, perhaps not the most intelligent fellow on the block. Is that a fair way to describe him? You know, that that is might be your conclusion. I might differ with it slightly because... Uh, well, you know more than I do. I, I'm just throwing that out there. I don't want to... Sure. I don't want to well, insult I mean, hey, his memory. Know, look, the book is out there, and, and readers can uh, can uh, make of it uh, what they will. But I would say, having done so much work um, on this story, on Billy's story, and, and getting to know his family so well, I would say that Billy actually um, a, a very intelligent guy. I mean, he taught himself to a pretty high degree uh, Russian and Arabic, just sitting at the computer, just out of his own personal interests. Um, he also taught himself a lot about... Uh, global conflict, uh, especially uh, after the Arab Spring began, he became very much engaged and became an expert in it, really an expert. I mean, I've seen a lot of his uh, filings that he, he sent to his FBI handlers, and uh, they really were spot on. And this was, this was coming from somebody who grew up outside of Detroit, uh, had no uh, experience with any of these issues, and just was simply uh, swept up by them and taught himself all of these things. So on one hand, uh, you might have, have a point. I mean, I think I would, I would prefer to say that in many respects, he was naive of some of the issues that he was getting involved in, especially related to the FBI, but he was really rather bright. How typical is this story? I mean, you've, you've, you've chosen to written, you've chosen to write this book about, um, Billy Riley, but have you written it as a, as a warning for future Billy Rileys? Is it designed as a critique of the FBI or in some ways perhaps even as an expose of their lack of concern of the safety of young men like Billy Riley? Mm -hmm. I wouldn't say it's a critique. Uh, that certainly was not my goal. Again, that might be what a reader would conclude. Um, you know, my goal is simply to gather the facts and and arrange them and, uh, and and present them to the reader. I'll tell you why I started in on the stories, because the, when I heard about Billy's case on a phone call from a source in late 2017, I immediately saw the, uh, the fundamental elements of a fascinating story. I, I heard that we had someone who was lost, someone who was lost in Russia, an American lost in Russia, and that this person uh, was working for the FBI. It was unclear whether he was working for the FBI in Russia, but he had a, a five-year history of working with the Bureau. And on top of it, I learned in that initial phone call that, uh, that Billy's FBI handler visited his home uh, very soon after his parents lost communication with him in Russia. So I saw all these elements uh, that brought us to some of the top-line issues of our day, the global war on terror, uh, the war in Ukraine, the breakdown of relations between Russia and the United States, the transformation of the FBI post 9-11 from strictly a law enforcement body to more of an intelligence agency. And I saw uh, the story of a family that was enmeshed in the gears of uh, American national security and just trying to figure out simply what happened to their son and where he was. So for me, it was it was a chance to um, to delve deeply into uh, a set of really important issues for our time, but also possibly to, to provide a service to the family and, and help them find their son. Yeah, and as a parent, my heart goes out to um, his parents, of course, who are still around. 
Uh, a lot of uh, the book covers and, and your pieces cover the tragedy of these uh, people's loss of their son. Uh, and in fact, the first piece I think you wrote back in October 2019 on this is entitled, the, sub, the, the title for the, the journal is, The FBI Lost Our Son. Do they believe that? Are they, uh, do they think that the FBI is actually responsible for the death of their son? Well, I'll tell you, the, uh, the FBI for the Rileys, um, uh, despite Billy's you know, adventures in Russia and, and the folks who, um, you know, who, who's, who mixed with him there, the, the Rileys have really focused on the FBI as, as the main culprit. You know, they, they believe that, um, and they're right, that the FBI has never been truthful with them in terms of the FBI's knowledge of Billy's uh, travels to Russia, his not their knowledge of his activities there, their knowledge of his goal in, in going to Russia in the first place. Uh, that much is certain, and we have that established factually. Uh, so they really feel like, like, hey, they're they're Americans, they're born and raised, they're taxpayers, they're they're loyal citizens, and uh, and their government, they feel, uh, you know, really. It, yeah, but but um... yeah. You know, I, I take, and again, I, I don't want to be critical of these people. It's a sure. catastrophe for them, mm-hmm. but uh, you know, calling themselves taxpayers or whatever. I mean, you you can't accuse everyone in in the FBI. How senior was his handler? Was this a was he an important in your view? I mean, you've written this book. You've done a lot of mm-hmm. legwork. You're 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 a subject expert. How important was Billy Riley to the the FBI was he just the guy who somehow stumbled into this and they were using for whatever reason, but he was never particularly critical. That's yeah, a good question, and and it's important to have that that understanding, that contextual understanding. I mean, Billy Riley was one of thousands of confidential human sources that the FBI uses and and uh, signs up and and discards uh, constantly. Um, some of these people are critically important, and others you know, aren't, aren't really that important at all. I would say Billy was somewhere in the middle. Um, Billy, they, the, the, the agents who worked with him in the Detroit office, um, they really did rely on him for, uh, for a lot of uh, information and, and research in the Middle East, especially. So, um, you know. Well, uh, uh, but what exactly does that mean? I mean, there was an well, Firstly, I, I, I don't even understand why, and, I'll, and, I'll and you can explain this. Andrew, let me, let me explain. Yeah, go on. So, um, so you got to understand that there, there are a lot of these people that the FBI scoops up and works with, right? But um, there are then above these people, there, there are many, many different types of staffers at the FBI. Then, of course, you have the handling agents, the case agents. Uh, there are many, many of these people. And above them, there are, there are uh, managers and there are many managerial levels. So I'm just painting a picture for you. Billy was far down. The, the scale of people of importance in the FBI, but but people like him are really provide the, the foundation for FBI work. I mean, the, the work, the, the duty of an FBI agent is to find intelligence and information that resides outside the Bureau and bring it into the Bureau and bring it into the larger uh, U.S. national security structure. So people like Billy, without them, the FBI can't really even do its job. So but, but let, me, let me continue, because in the FBI Detroit office at the time, the, the, the man who headed the FBI Detroit office is currently, when at the time that Billy went to Russia and disappeared there, 
is currently the number two person in all of the FBI. And you would happen to think that someone like that, who's, who, who's in charge at that time, should bear some responsibility. What's his name? Uh, Paula Bate is his name. And um, has he responded? Have you talked to him? Has he responded I've talked to, to him, the yeah. book? Yeah, yeah. There's a scene in the book when I encounter him actually at a party at the Department of Justice. Uh, just just a happenstance. I'd been trying to talk to him for a while, um, but the FBI wasn't interested in participating on the record for this, uh, the article or the book. Um, but I happened to be at this party and I saw him uh, giving a toast. It was a going away party for a DOJ official. And I recognized him and I went up to him and we spoke and we spoke off the record. But um, he knew the case. He knew it right away. And that told me that at the time he was the third in charge of the FBI. And the fact that the, the third highest ranking official in the FBI knew Billy Riley's case and it was on the top of his head told me that, you know, the case was actually more important than the FBI was letting on. What recourse you've mentioned that the parents believe that the FBI was responsible. Do they have legal recourse when it comes to the FBI? Can they sue them? Sure, they can sue. They can sue. And I know they've considered that, but uh, I, I don't think they're hopeful. I mean, you got to understand, of course, that they, uh, you know, their lives have been overtaken by Billy's disappearance. And they spent years trying to figure out where he is and what happened to him. Um, and uh, through it all, uh, I think one of the, their main conclusions is that they're helpless against the government. If the government doesn't want to tell them something, it won't. Um, after the journal article published, the two senators from Michigan and uh, the Riley's uh, representative in the House of Representatives jointly wrote a letter to the Department of Justice Inspector General demanding an investigation into the, into the case of Billy Riley. And here we are three and a half years later, and they, they haven't responded. The Department of Justice hasn't responded to Capitol Hill. So in the face of that, what are the parents to think? So tell us more about the case. So Billy Riley was working for the FBI. He went to mm -hmm. Moscow. Your, your piece in the journal in the book describes these movements between Moscow and, and other parts of Russia ending up in Rostov-on-the-Don, which I think is the last place that uh, his phone records suggest he was. His parents went to a beach on Rostov-on-the-Don. What was he doing in Russia, in your view at least? Sure. Well, I mean, I, I know exactly what he was doing there. Um, he, he, that's right. He flew to, to, from Detroit to Moscow in 2015. He immediately took a train to the south, to Rostov-on-Don, as you mentioned, which at that time was the staging point for all Russian military activity just across the border into Ukraine, into the eastern part of Ukraine, Donbass. And Billy, um, he found his way to a volunteer fighter camp in Rostov-on-Don. And this was a collection point for mostly Russians, but, but international people as well, who were, had been recruited to cross the border into Ukraine and join volunteer fighter battalions to fight against Ukraine for Russian interests and separatist interests in eastern Ukraine. And that's, that's where Billy was. He was there, uh, except for a, a brief uh, a trip in the Volga region, he was there for about six weeks at the camp, and that was his last known location. And who do you think killed him? Well, I prefer not to get into the, the very end of the book. I'd like people to pick it up and enjoy the read. So maybe we'll, we'll leave that. Well, no, I, I mean, it's, it's, it's a wonderful read. I wouldn't necessarily say that they're going to enjoy it. It's a very sad story. We know that uh, he's no longer around. 
Um, was he a victim of, of Putin or at least of Putin's politics of the invasion? It's hard to assign uh, culpability. I think uh, there are certainly people listed in the book who are directly responsible for things that happened to Billy. Um, but this, this case really is a, a lot wider than that. And I think, uh, you know, I think there are people in the U.S. who also bear responsibility. You've done a lot of reporting. You, as I said, you're one of the first to report, I think the first to report on the Russian atrocities in Bucha. Um, you had a piece from April of last year, uh, war crimes uh, committed by the Russians. You're a historian um, of great power politics too, Brett. I mean, how appalling is this war when it comes to human rights? All wars come with horrible stories, with, with terrible crimes. Is there something unique about this war? Is it just another horrible war uh, in a region uh, which has a history of these terrible wars? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know, I was having lunch the other day in, in Washington with uh, a Russian gentleman I've known for years, and and he was saying the same thing you just said. He said, you know, all, all wars are terrible. And I, you know, I, I said, that's not the point. The point is that this war is terrible. And the point is that, that Russia caused this war. Russia invaded Ukraine without being provoked. Russia didn't have to invade Ukraine. And you're right, I did see those atrocities in Bucha outside Kiev, you know, the, the, the day after Russia left. And, and the Ukrainians had had no time to, uh, to, to clean up this, the, the town at all. And it was as raw as you can imagine. Um, I mean, this is... Uh, I've seen it up, up close, and this is uh, you know, a crime against humanity that Russia has perpetrated against the Ukrainian people. Um, I mean, I don't know how much clearer I can say it. The equivalent of the FBI in Russia, the security services, how bound up in all these atrocities are they when one looks for uh, those responsible for this, which maybe one day there'll be an international court, like the, the courts after the Second World War, in your experience, who is most responsible for these atrocities? Is it the secret services? Is it the military? Is it the government in Moscow? I think it's a sort of a two-pronged answer. The first answer, I mean, you're talking about sort of practically who is responsible, right? And I think it's it's a mixture. It's, you know, it's uh, the commanders on the ground. It's uh, it's uh, Ministry of Defense and, and the way that they're prosecuting the war. It, it is the security services. It's the FSB. It's the... Uh, it's uh, military intelligence of Russia. It's, it's really all those folks who are pressing the buttons on the ground. Uh, the second part of the answer is really a little bit more philosophical, if you will. Maybe that might not be the right word, but, you know, it, it really comes down to one person, and that's Vladimir Putin. Um, you know, this war didn't have to happen. This is a war that he started planning for, at least in his mind, as far back as 2007, 2008. When he first started speaking publicly, he started giving voice to some of these uh, thoughts that I think he'd been expressing privately uh, about uh, Ukraine's relationship to Russia and how Ukraine was really a part of Russia and not its own sovereign state. So it's um, it's really a, the reason that this war happened, if, if you had to say it, put it as simply as possible, is the fact that Vladimir Putin just stayed in power too long. And he, be, he began thinking about his place in history rather than about running a country. We've had people, several people on the show uh, over the last year, 
since the invasion, uh, Brett, they're not necessarily apologists for Putin, but they make yep. arguments about the NATO expansion and mismanagement by American diplomats. Is there any argument to be made, not necessarily in defense of Russia, but certainly to to, 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 to cloud the moral argument about Russian responsibility? Um, I don't think one can cloud that moral argument related to this war. But of course, it's yeah, history's complicated. You know that. Uh, and there's no fresh start in history. You can never say, well, mm. from this point onward, I mean, everything's related to what came before. Um, if you had to choose a fresh, fresh start, if you would try to, you might choose you know, Christmas Day 1991 when the Soviet Union ceased to exist. I mean, that was something of a, a new beginning for the United States and this new country, the Russian Federation. And, um, and, and there is substance to the idea that the United States made mistakes. Of course, the United States made mistakes in the relationship. Russia did too. And other countries uh, made mistakes. Um, but I think when you start talking about uh, NATO expansion leading directly to, for example, the atrocities that we witness in Bucha, I, I think you'd have trouble making a, a real argument there. And coming back to the very sad story of Billy Riley, the FBI may be incompetent, perhaps morally culpable in some way or other, but they're nonetheless the good guys in a war between, as you suggest, good and evil, or certainly on, on the one side, evil, and on the other side, a degree of innocence. Mm -hmm. Well, boy, I mean, one fundamental problem with the FBI is that it really is um, beyond oversight. It is beyond congressional oversight even though there, there should be oversight. I mean, um, there's the Judiciary Committee in each side of, the, of, of Congress. Um, the, the gentleman who previously served as the Riley's representative in the House of Representatives, he sat on that committee, and even he couldn't get any answers for the family. Um, and, and you see time and again throughout uh, the history of the FBI uh, where they, they make mistakes, they make they gr gross oversteps, and... Oftentimes, a committee will sit, a special committee will sit, and will sort of rein in the FBI. But very soon after, there will be a new national emergency, which breaks those chains and actually gives the FBI greater license. And we saw no better example of that than 9-11. I mean, the, F the FBI, that was their signal failure. I mean, they, that, their job was to pre prevent something like that, and they failed. And they were rewarded with absolute license, which still really continues to this day. I mean, they're still kind of beyond oversight. Um, they get away with things, and they don't tell Capitol Hill what they're doing. And it happens time and again. And my hope is that Billy's story, and perhaps stories like Billy's, because there are others out there, will awaken people to this and, and hopefully bring greater oversight to the FBI. Is there a degree, Brett, of institutional rivalry, even hostility between the FBI and the CIA? For me, I am not an expert in this area, but I would have guessed that the CIA would have been much more active and it's much more likely that a, a young man like Billy Riley would have ended up as a CIA operative rather than an FBI operative. How is the, the division of intelligence labor divided between the yeah. FBI and the CIA? Yeah, that's a great observation. Um, and in fact, when you read a lot of Billy's reports, you, you kind of think, well, this sounds like something that should be written for the CIA. Now, historically, there was always a rivalry. 
um, because as you probably know, the CIA was created at, right after World War II. Um, and uh, President Truman at the time basically bifurcated the responsibilities. I'll simplify it, but basically it's, he said that the CIA will work abroad and the FBI will work domestically, and, and that's it, and you've got to play by those rules. And uh, that created, and other factors created, uh, real animosity between the two agencies. And again, we come back to 9-11 because the, the failure of these two and other agencies to communicate and to share intelligence and information led directly to those attacks. Um, now, after 9-11, the 9-11 Commission up on uh, Capitol Hill, they mandated that the two groups, the two agencies work together. And so you saw actually, uh, for the first time, uh, the FBI and the CIA, sort of the CIA was teaching the FBI how to cultivate intelligence sources because the FBI had to become, had to get into the field of intelligence rather than law enforcement, rather than building cases for courts, they had to get ahead of terrorist crimes, and they, and they had to act more like the CIA. Um, and so then you also saw, uh, as, as CIA officers and FBI agents got to know one, each other, one another better, uh, you got to see how they would share sources. FBI CHS, as which Billy was, a confidential human source, sometimes they would be co-opted by the CIA. And that's a really interesting thing to understand when we think about Billy's story, because we still don't know exactly if he was sent to Russia by the FBI or perhaps another agency or if he went on his own or if the, the truth lies somewhere in between. But that's the uh, that's the world we live in now, where the FBI and the CIA uh, do work together because Congress has mandated that. Yeah, it it all speaks of the bureaucratization of intelligence. As I said, it's um, it's not James Bond. It's the opposite of James Bond. It's 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 a kind of absurdist Graham Greene. And from a parent's point of view, it's a nightmare. You suggest that the parents, if not suspicious, realized that something was going on with Billy. I mean, was he a career professional? Was he salaried? Had no. he survived? Had he successfully um, accomplished this mission, what would he be doing now? Would he be still working for the FBI? Or was he a, a, a kind of part of this new precariat, working occasionally for the intelligence organizations when they needed him, but it wasn't a career job? Yeah, you're right. It was not a career track. Um, and after a while, while, Billy realized that. And he yearned for something serious. Uh, he talked to his handlers many times about uh, getting their help to apply for a real job at the FBI. And they would always sort of hold him at arm's length while also encouraging him. And they would say, well, wait, let's wait until the next presidential administration comes in. It'll be easier for us. Um, but the truth is, and this comes from talking to many former uh, FBI agents, the truth is that FBI agents would never consider a CHS for a full-time position. And there are many reasons why. One reason is that a CHS, confidential human source, again, as Billy was, these people are encouraged by their handlers to assume identities, to lie, because that's, that's how they attract targets, investigative targets. So they're, they're, they're encouraged to lie, but then also lie to targets, but tell the truth to the FBI agents. And FBI agents, honestly, they, they can never really tell when that person is going to sort of, you know, go the other way. And so in, by encouraging these CHSs into a lot of sort of shady situations, 
um, the agents uh, basically disqualify them from future employment at the FBI. But they, they always sort of lead them on with promises that they're not required to keep. And that's, one, that's the nature of life, uh, isn't it, uh, Brett? I mean, we're all led on. We all need to be critical. I mean, judging from the story or the way that you write about the story in the book and in, in your journal pieces, it wasn't very sophisticated. He showed up volunteering in Russia with a, a rolling suitcase that was entirely inappropriate. Did he have any training at all? Now, the FBI doesn't really give CHS as much training at all. And, and look, I, I will agree with you, Billy. Billy was an adult. He made his own choices. But conversely, I would say that the FBI does have some responsibility to the people that it recruits. And it has a responsibility to the families of the people that it recruits when something goes wrong. So, you know, those two things can be true at the same time. Did Billy realize that he could have been risking his life? Did he know how dangerous this mission was? I think there's an element of Billy that was a little naive, and I don't mean that negatively. What I mean is in some of his previous work in the Detroit area with the FBI, you saw that he would sometimes have trouble selling himself convincingly uh, to, a, to an investigative target. Because I talked to some of the people that he, that he was going after um, in the Detroit area. And they said, you know, I, they said they knew right away that something was off. And that told me that, uh, that Billy was, was better sort of at the keyboard than he was out in the field. But it also told me, you know, that, that that's a, I think that's a positive quality in a person. You know, Billy did have trouble lying. Um, and I think ultimately that led him yeah, I don't think there's any doubt about it. He was clearly a very decent man, a very innocent man. Yeah. He lost his life uh, for, for no reason. I mean, he was so low level. I mean, what, his, his death was entirely pointless. That's the tragedy for the family. I mean, he wasn't James Bond here. No, 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 no. I mean, he would, look, Billy was not a, a trained operative. He wasn't uh, a spy uh, in the classic sense. Um, he was someone that the, he was a class of person that the FBI began scooping up in large numbers after 9-11 in the furious hunt for intelligence and information to prevent another, another attack. How many uh, thousands of people, Brett, are working like Billy Riley for the FBI in America today? The number is unknown. Uh, only the FBI. Well, I mean, are we talking 50,000, 100,000, 1,000? What would be your guess? I mean, it would simply be a guess. And uh, at, so... Worth very little. The FBI alone... Well, you know more than anyone else. I mean, you certainly know more than I do. Your guess is a better one than, than others. Sure, sure. But the FBI alone knows the figure, and they, they will not disclose it. If I had to say, I would say it's probably you know around 10,000 or so. And, and is this book, in a sense, a warning to parents, perhaps, if their son in particular spends too much time behind a keyboard and starts disappearing into odd places should parents mm -hmm. be wary what could they do i mean what could what could billy riley's parents have done yeah well i you know the thing is billy riley's parents they were glad that he found something that really fascinated him and they were impressed by as i as anyone would be i think by the speed with which he educated himself in these important global issues uh, and when the FBI came, came calling to the house, I think they were, you know, they didn't know 
they didn't know much about the FBI. Very few people do. And, um, and they, you know, I think most of what they knew about the FBI, like most people, was from movies and TV and you know, probably articles that they read. And, and what does that tell us? Most of that stuff is, is positive. It gives a positive image of the FBI. Now, the FBI does a lot of good work. Um, but there's a lot of nuance there that people are unaware of. So when the FBI came calling to the Riley's house, they were, they were kind of proud of their son, that he had attracted this, this interest and attention from the world's foremost investigative body, and that he was now sort of on a new path. But they, his parents and Billy himself, they, they just they didn't know what they were getting into, and nor could they have. Yeah, it's 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 a tragic story, um, brilliantly told. I think your book is going to be one of the, the books of the year, Lost Son, and a very moving book and a very profound book about the terribly unjust war. Finally, I can't resist asking you this. Um, of course, uh, one of your colleagues, uh, Evan um, Gershkovich, is now in a Russian jail. Uh, you're obviously not going to reveal anything, especially to me, publicly. Um, but did you, do you know Evan? I mean, how, how tragic a story is this? And, and how does this, in a, in a way, connect with the story of Billy, uh, Billy Riley to innocence uh, sucked into a horribly violent, unjust war? Yeah. Well, I thank you for mentioning, Evan. It's really important that uh, two months into his captivity that we keep him front and center. It's very easy for us to forget about him. Um, yeah, I know Evan. I don't know him that well. He started with us January last year, just before the all-out invasion of Ukraine. And we were all, of course, very busy. Evan and I worked on some stories together. Um, it, it, there, there is similarity here uh, between these two cases. Um, you know, you have, you have two, two people who are um, you know, caught in, in the maelstrom in Russia and really unable to, to affect their own fates. Um, and they're at the mercy of Russian authorities. But there is a difference, isn't there? And that Evan sure. Sure. is a journalist like you. Yep. Um, and for better or worse, uh, Billy Riley, there's no doubt, was working for the FBI. <clears throat> no, there is a difference. Of course, you're right. Um, but, um, you know, the difference, the difference for, for Evan, I think, is that, you know, Evan was... Uh, was targeted by the authorities. You know, they they had a goal, and they still have a goal. We're not entirely clear what that goal is, but the Russian authorities are pursuing it. You know, they 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 targeted Evan. They wanted to take a, a reporter. They wanted to take a foreign reporter, perhaps specifically an American one, and they're holding on to him. We don't know exactly why, but um, yeah, I mean, Evan is. Uh, you know, we're all just yeah, very saddened by his his plight, and, and we just don't know how long it's going to last. It's, it's very sad, of course. More human collateral and a catastrophic war, which has already claimed tens of thousands of innocent people. Finally, Brett, let's go back to where we started, which is this war that doesn't seem able to, to end. I uh, talked about having a summit without Russia, which right. your paper ran this morning. I'm not entirely sure of the point of that. How can this war end in a way that will satisfy the Ukrainians and also bring the Russians to the table? 
right? It's a question we've all been asking ourselves and no one can quite figure it out, right? I mean, it's, it's very difficult to figure this one out um, because I think to a large degree, each side of the war thinks that it is winning or has won in some way, right? And when it, you're in that situation, it's, it's impossible to bring the sides to the same table to talk about things. Um, but isn't in, in an odd way, it doesn't that create a condition where they can both, they can come to a deal and both claim victory and, and walk away and end the war? Maybe in other situations, but not in this situation. Um, and, and I'll tell you just one reason why. And that is because these two countries are neighbors. And Ukraine knows that if, uh, if they come to terms with Russia, that there's going to be nothing to stop Russia from simply doing this again next week, next year, whenever. So at least from the Ukrainian side, what Ukraine, I think, requires is some sort of security arrangement. Now, if that means joining NATO, which a lot of people have talked about, but could be far-fetched, or some other combination of countries coming in to secure Ukraine's uh, security, uh, I think that's what it's going to really require. And also, President Zelensky of Ukraine is going to have a very hard time selling any kind of concession to his people who've sacrificed so much to hold back against Russia. So it's, 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 it's kind of impossible to figure out how it might end at this moment. Are there any historical examples that we can learn from of terrible wars that have come to an end without the complete victory of one side or the other? Oh, I think history is uh, full of such wars that were, uh, you know, it didn't quite end decisively, right? Um, there, there are wars that, that we know of where, you know, that are still officially ongoing, right, where treaties have yet to be signed. Um, I don't think this is one of those instances, however. 